the beginning was the word. 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 Word, I'm gonna say the word. 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 From the studios of KJZZ in Tempe, Arizona, welcome to Word. I'm your host, Tom Maxidon. We're rolling out this new podcast at word.kjzz.org. We're focusing on the literary arts scene in the state and the region, and sometimes internationally, when the situation warrants. Like today, with guest Michael Dylan Welch, creator and administrator of Nahai Raimo, National Haiku Writing Month. We'll talk to Michael in just a second, but one of the reasons why we're launching this podcast is to get you involved in the creative arts. And in fact, all month long, we're taking submissions specifically of your haiku. Details for entry are at word.kjzz.org, and the topic all month long is Arizona, whatever that means to you. But first, my guest, Michael Dylan Welch. Michael, uh, before we get into talking about National Haiku Writing Month in February, I just wanted to get some brief background. I understand that uh, you were a technical editor. Um, I, I'm sure most people remember those dummies books. Yeah, I helped to edit the very first uh, dummies book called Dots for Dummies. And so how does a, a technical editor become interested in haiku? Well, it uh, happened the other way around. Um, I grew up writing poetry a lot and particularly enjoyed short poetry. So when I discovered the haiku uh, in high school, I immediately gravitated toward it and wrote a lot of haiku along with other poetry. And I think the precision of haiku, and maybe poetry in general, is akin to the precision that I think technical writing and technical editing has. So you first were interested in poetry then in your high school years. What led you to be interested in that form? Because not everyone certainly is. They might like poetry, uh, but not necessarily haiku. I can't explain it except that I like short poetry. Um, no particular attraction to Japan necessarily. Just the interest in short poetry that attracted me. Some people are familiar with National Novel Writing Month, which happens in November. I'm not sure uh, how many folks are familiar with National Haiku Writing Month, which is uh, something that you started quite some time ago. Can you kind of give us the background on that, why you decided to start that? Yes, and in fact, it started with uh, NaNoWriMo. In 2010, I did uh, National Novel Writing Month, um, or I was about to. It was October, just before NaNoWriMo started in November that year. And it occurred to me that there ought to be a National Haiku Writing Month. And I thought that February made the most sense because it's the shortest month for the shortest genre of poetry. And so I got the domain name, set up a Facebook page, and just started it without much expectation. And I thought, well, okay, um, what do you do? Well, how about one haiku a day? Um, that uh, whether that's easier or harder than writing a novel in an entire month, I don't know. But the idea of writing regularly every day rather than 28 haiku on the last day um, helps get you in the haiku habit. And that's what I wanted to do. And so I set it up and we had the very first one in February of 2011. And on the very first day, someone, and I sure wish I could remember who this was, someone suggested 
oh, it would be nice if we had a writing prompt. And so I made one up and offered writing prompts for the rest of the month. And at the end of the, towards the end of the month, someone said, this is so much fun. Let's keep doing. Why do we have to, um, let's keep doing it. Why do we have to stop at the end of February? And so I invited uh, a guest prompter to provide prompts for the month of March. And that has continued every year. And we're now in our ninth year, uh, uh, starting February 1. And we've had daily writing prompts every single day for all those nine years. And it's uh, built a wonderful community that has far exceeded my expectations. Well, we want folks here in Arizona that are listening to us to participate this month. And uh, we'll get to a prompt here in just a little bit. But um, let's talk about form, because I think most people, you know, consider the form to be pretty rigid. That is five syllables in the first line, seven syllables in the second, and then five syllables, uh, you know, for a total of 17 overall. But you push back against that, right? Yeah, it's sort of like thinking that painting is um, painting by numbers. Um, You know, that's not really art. Um, It's good practice, fine, whatever. It's what most people were taught. It's what I was taught in high school. Um, The problem with 575 syllables is that it obscures the more important targets Uh, such as the Kigo or seasonal reference, something called the Kireji or cutting word that divides the poem into two parts and gives it a structure of juxtaposition that creates space between the two parts as you try to figure out their relationship. It obscures other aspects as well. But the problem with 575 in the first place is that syllables is not really what is counted in Japanese. And if you read a lot of linguistic papers about the subject, uh, they will say, for example, that syllables is the incorrect term to describe what is being counted in Japanese. So for us to say syllables is uh, a false premise in the first place. And to illustrate the point, uh, the word haiku in English has two syllables, but in Japan it counts as three sounds, ha-i-ku, that's how it's counted. And the word Tokyo which we might say is Tokyo in English, three syllables, is actually pronounced Tokyo in Japanese, which sounds like two, but is actually four because of the two long vowel sounds that are counted separately. So it's counted as To-O-Kyo-O. A further example is the word sign in English, one syllable. In Japanese, that's counted as three sounds, Sayan. So they are counting mora, which is a linguistic term, uh, not syllables. And the uh, 17 mora uh, that make up a Japanese haiku are also used up much more quickly in Japanese because their words have more syllables per concept. So a typical Japanese haiku has far fewer words and fewer concepts than 17 syllables in English. In other words, the weight of the ball is different in a Japanese haiku. 17 syllables in English can make a very heavy ball. In Japanese, it's a much lighter ball. Um, And I think the idea of writing 575 in English is best to avoid because you can gain so much more by hitting those other targets and being shorter. What does the word haiku or haiku, as you would say in Japanese, mean? It has been interpreted as meaning playful verse or play verse in the sense of a drama, a drama, 
like a, a you go to a play, so a play verse that tells a very short story. So what do you think then makes a great haiku in your opinion? Um, you know, departing from obviously the 575, what do you think gives something some punch, if you will? I would say that if it happens to be 575, that's not necessarily a virtue, but it's not a problem if it happens to be. So what matters is other things entirely. And for me, that's the strength of the images, um, the moment that's conveyed, but ultimately the feeling that the poem creates. And something I say in the workshops I give is don't write about your feelings, which would seem counterintuitive. But the point is instead to write about what caused your feelings. And if you write about what caused your feelings, then the reader can see those causes directly and have their own feelings in, re in reaction to whatever is presented. So if you see a poem about a meteor shower, you can just be told that and imagine what that meteor shower is like and have your own feelings of wonder or awe in relation to it. And depending on what the rest of the poem is, the focus might change. Um, but if you were just shown the facts, the objective sensory images, something to do with the five senses, then you can put yourself into the poem. There's a Japanese poet named Sei Sensui who was referred to haiku as an unfinished poem, meaning that the reader finishes the poem by empathizing and entering into the poem. And how would that be different than other poetry, for instance? I mean, I get the feeling that, um, you know, people can put themselves in, into just about anything that they read. Yes, that's true. But I think haiku requires it more than other kinds of poetry. Also, other sorts of poetry, longer poetry, can use a wider range of techniques, perhaps. Haiku tends to be a bit more focused on the images, the sensory images, and this idea of implication of something left out of the poem. So I think a, a, a reading of haiku sort of requires the reader to look for what is left out. Uh, but more so in a more concentrated way than might be true of longer poetry. You can you can read a haiku and think, well, what does that mean? What is the relationship of this part with that part? But if you enter into it and think about it, it might click into place for you. And it it might not, because poems like such as haiku are very personal. And a poem will click or not click in very personal ways, and that's perfectly okay. We're speaking with Michael Dylan Welch, who's the administrator of Nahai Rimo. It's National Haiku Writing Month in February, and so we wanted to talk to Michael because we are also kicking off our own contest here, and we want folks who are listening to get involved and to submit their haiku. We'll tell you how to do that here in just a little bit. You know, one of the things, just to pick up with what you're saying, is that in some ways uh, what makes haiku preferential um, is that sometimes it could be a riddle, that there is there is no distinct answer. There's a, a riddle aspect to it. Um, a plus B could equal C, and that's rewarding to sort of figure out that riddle. But I like to think of haiku as one plus one equals three. In other words, there's something that's not part of the equation that is added to the poem um, that takes it beyond being just a riddle. And often that that plus that equals three is something emotional, some sort of feeling that is implied by the facts, by the images that are presented. Um, and it creates 
it creates engagement potentially for the reader that for me is uh, greater than in a lot of other poetry. As you sort of, you know, look out across the years um, and how topics that people write on, for instance, they, they might be sort of universal, they might be very temporal. Um, what have you seen maybe that has changed in people's writing, um, at least on your site anyway, say over the last couple years? Have, have there been things that have been noticeable that, that really stick out, you know, whether people pay attention to, you know, things that are going on contemporarily, like in the news, what have you? That's a hard one. In a way, haiku dwells in um, things that are ceaseless, um, that are uh, the same valuable subjects that were written about 300 years ago. Anything can become a cliche. You could write about cherry blossoms, which has been written about for centuries, and do it in just the same way that somebody else has done it. And thus, you're not doing anything new. Uh, and that can, that can be tired. Um, so it's hard to write a good new poem about certain subjects, and yet the core subject itself is not tired. It's how you treat it that's tired, that can be tired. Uh, as for trends, I don't know that I've seen trends in the Nahai Rimo. Most people are posting three-line poems, but there are one-liners as well, or other variations. Uh, and that's, that mirrors what's going on outside the Nahai Rimo community. There are so-called Gendai haiku. That's the Japanese term for modern. Some aspects of the Gendai tradition in Japan are very avant-garde. And you'll see some of that with the Nahai Rimo group. That um, trend seems to be waning a little bit in English. Um, in the last 10 years, it uh, became a little more prominent, but I, I think it's just another, it's another arrow in the quiver. You could write a little bit more uh, surreal haiku sometimes. Do you have, um, you know, a concept of sort of when haiku was first introduced to English-speaking audiences, and then if there was a catalyst that, you know, made it I guess, teachable or, or made it interesting to scholars to, to actually study in, you know, universities, colleges, high school classrooms, what have you? Uh, that's a big question worthy of a whole book. I'll try to keep it shorter than that. Uh, there were first translations made into English and I think French um, in the late 1800s. And then early in the 1900s, uh, there was an interest uh, through Ezra Pound, Yoni Noguchi, um, and others um, that gave rise to imagism. And that's really the first wave of haiku appreciation in the West. And then it waned. And then World War II basically cut off connection in the West to, uh, to the Japanese arts. Um, but after the war, R.H. Um, Blythe translated uh, a lot of haiku, and he was uh, very influential, especially among beat poets who really picked up the haiku cause and that really amounted to the second wave of haiku appreciation and even some mainstream publishers were publishing very well-known books of haiku well-known relative to poetry i would say and uh that gave rise to the beginnings of the haiku society of america in 1968 
the very first English language haiku journal started in 1963 called American Haiku. Uh, other journals started around that time. Um, various organizations uh, and journals um, came and went, of course. Um, but there have been dozens of English language haiku journals over the years. And more recently, in the last 15 years or so, that has now gone to the Internet. And with Internet journals, online journals, and a lot of communication through uh, social media, the community has really become tight-knit on a worldwide scale to the extent that I could visit New Zealand or Australia or South Africa or Ghana and have haiku poets that I know online uh, who I believe would welcome me and uh, I would welcome them if they were visiting here. And that's a, been a wonderful thing about the, um, the worldwide haiku community. And I see it every day with the Nahai Raimo group because it's very international. And part of the challenge, one of the challenges with posting daily prompts uh, with all the guest posters is that I tell them they need to post their prompt for February 1 or whatever the date is before the day starts in New Zealand. So if they live in Germany or England or Florida or whatever, they need to look up the time zone differences to make sure they get their prompts out before the day starts in New Zealand relative to their own time zone. And that's that's a worldwide awareness that uh, is, <laughs> it has to be very practical um, to, to be uh, aware of that time difference, but it's also an awareness of cultural differences and it, that's wonderful to see on the uh, on the Nahai Rimo Facebook page. Right, and obviously it's kind of a challenge because it requires that folks speak English, um, you know, and there are simply some words in people's indigenous languages that do not translate into English and obviously vice versa. And and so I, I sort of wonder, you know, as far as the, the prompts are concerned, um, how constrictive are people? I've seen a lot of one-word prompts. I've seen, you know, prompts that are longer, obviously, than that. One of the tips I give to American prompters is to think about the fact that the seasons are going to be opposite in the Southern Hemisphere, or they may refer to something that means something to Americans like July 4, but not if you live in Rwanda or whatever. Um, uh, so some of the sensitivity to the universality of uh, prompts is something to think about. Or at least when you're sharing something you know to be regional, just acknowledge that it's regional. Well, and we want our listening audience to try their hand at haiku. Uh, whether you're a traditionalist, uh, whether you're a first-timer, whether you've been doing this a long time, um, we'll give you the details on how to submit to that. Michael Dylan Welch is the national administrator and the brains behind Nahai Raimo, which is National Haiku Writing Month, and, and he started it. How can folks participate, Michael? There is a website, nahairaimo.com, with some information. Uh, that you can check out. If you're on Facebook, uh, look for the Nahai Rimo page. If you're on Twitter, uh, look for the hashtag, uh, hashtag Nahai Rimo. Uh, you can post with that hashtag on both Twitter and Facebook. The idea is just to write for yourself uh, and write every day. I found that by writing regularly, I tend to notice things differently in the world. Even if it's manufactured, like, oh, I got to write a haiku today, I got to notice things. 
it sinks in and you begin to write it naturally instead of in a manufactured way. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Michael Dillon Welch, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Word. Word. Word, I'm going to say the word. 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 At KJZZ, we really want all of you to send a haiku. You've been listening to Word from the studios of KJZZ in Tempe, Arizona. You can find us on word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and thanks for listening.